0: All right, what's up, guys? How are we doing tonight? What's up? Yes, doing great. It's a lovely Thursday night here in Minneapolis. Come on. Great night to be at Salt Company. Glad you guys are here. Hey, my name is Austin. If you haven't met me yet, just want to say hey, and that I'd love to get to know you. We've got new people coming every week, and if that's you tonight, just want to say uh, a special, really glad that you're joining with us tonight, and uh, let's chat afterwards, you know? I'd love to meet you. But... Oh, also wanted to wanted to make this clear. If you're if you're wondering about like, oh, how do I sign up for the Soul Company conference and enter that drawing and make sure that I can be maybe you know have like a five, six, seven percent chance of winning eighty dollars? That's pretty good odds, wouldn't you say? That's pretty good odds. You should maybe. if you haven't scanned the QR code, you can also go to our website. There's a button on there. And you've gotta, you've gotta register before like the end of the message because they're gonna announce the winner at the very end of this service. So, oof. If you're looking at your phone uh, while I'm speaking, I won't think twice, you know. I'll assume that you're just registering. But hey, tonight, I'm excited to talk to you guys about another story. We're continuing our series, uh, Dangerously Close. We've been looking at close encounters with God. What does it look like when somebody gets up close and personal, comes face-to-face with God? What happens? That's what we've been looking at in this series. Uh, But I've got a question for you to get started. Have you ever made a bad trade? A bad trade? Maybe what's coming to your mind right now is like Pokemon cards, you know? I don't know if that's what you guys did, but I wasn't really into Pokemon cards, but I did, for a time, have this nice little nerdy stretch where I was into Bakugan. Anybody know what Bakugan is? Oh my goodness. These like little spheres that you would like roll onto magnet cards, and when the magnet triggered on this sphere, it would open up into like this transformer type thing. It is honestly a really fascinating feat of engineering, but kind of, you know, anyway, it's pretty cool. Did you ever have a bad trade with Pokemon cards? Or like, maybe you're thinking about your fantasy football team this week. You know, should not have gotten rid of Raheem Mostert, you know? Should not have let that guy go. A bad trade, right? Okay, let me tell you about a bad trade that I looked up earlier. This is potentially, uh, people talk about it as potentially one of the craziest, worst trades in NBA history, okay? I I was reading it said in 1996, the Charlotte Hornets NBA basketball team drafted a guy named Kobe Bryant. You guys, you guys know Kobe Bryant. Basketball fan or not, you know that he was a legend. But interestingly enough, if you were to remember him, you know that he did not play for the Charlotte Hornets. What happened? The Charlotte Hornets traded uh, Kobe Bryant away for a guy that I don't even know how to pronounce his name Vlad Divac I think is his name. He played Divac. Thank you. Uh, he played for like two years at the Charlotte Hornets and then went other places. And Kobe Bryant. This is some thing. These are some things that marked his career. Okay. He played twenty seasons. He won five NBA championships. He was an 18-time All-Star. He won an MVP, two NBA Finals MVPs. Yikes. Beast of a player. But what happened to the Charlotte Hornets? They gave him away. Bad trade, right? One One of the worst trades in NBA history. Would it be one of the worst trades of all time? What were they thinking? Giving away a guy like that. What kind of career would he have had at the Charlotte Hornets? What does it look like if he stays on the Charlotte Hornets? Would they not be a bottom feeder team for all of eternity? Would they not have to move franchises to a different place? Who knows? Who knows? A worst trade, the worst trade. They missed out. But here's the thing, guys. You're thinking, Austin, where's he going to go with this? This is not the worst trade of all time. No, you and I actually have both committed a trade that was far worse than the Kobe trade. We have committed a God trade. In other words, idolatry. It's this thing where we trade God away and we put something else at the center of our life. We trade away something that could be so great, something that could be so amazing, and yet we put something else at the center of our affections. This is what idolatry is, the exchange of God for an idol. It's the worst trade of all time, but each of us in this room, and every person across the face of the earth has committed this trade. So tonight we're going to talk about idolatry, what it looks like. We're going to look at a story in 1 Samuel chapter 5. That talks about an idol. So if you guys want to turn to 1 Samuel chapter 5, that'd be awesome. It's quite a ways towards the beginning of your Bible, maybe like one-sixth of the way. 1 Samuel chapter 5. And we're looking at an idol that had a name. His name was Dagon. Kind of a sweet name. But it's this interesting story that we're going to get a glimpse at. like What does it look like for God actually not to come face-to-face with a person this time? But what does it look like for God to come face to face with an idol? What happens? That's what we're going to see in 1 Samuel chapter 5 and then we're going to unpack idolatry together. So, let's read starting in verse 1 of 1 Samuel chapter 5. Here's what it says. When the Philistines captured the ark of God, they brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Then the Philistines took the ark of God And the head of Dagon and both his hands were lying cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. So what happens when an idol comes face to face in the same room as the presence of God? Shatters. The idol even bows down and worships God. Here's something that we need to know, some questions that I want to answer for you. Here's stuff that I was thinking about when I was reading this text. Like, what is the ark of God? Let's get straight on, like, what is that? Okay? In simple terms, it was this chest, a beautifully designed, intricately designed chest that was where God chose to hold his presence. It belonged to the Israel, the the people of Israel, and they would bring it around with them. And when it was in the tabernacle or in the temple, this is where the presence of God resided. This is where the high priest would go into the room, the Holy of Holies, and they would actually interact with God. His presence was in this chest. Okay, that's the ark of God. It's this chest where God dwelled. Now, how did it wind up in this place called Ashdod? Funny story. Do you guys remember the devious lick? Anybody? <laughs> this, this phenomenon when people would be like going around and they just like taking stuff. they like go to a football field and take some bleachers. they like go into a bathroom and like take, take a toilet and like walk around. This is crazy stuff. Devious like, okay, they're taking something that doesn't belong to them. The Philistines had just a terrible, devious lick on the Israelites. They conquered them in battle and took what was precious to them, okay? Are you with me? The Philistines had stolen the Ark of God. Now you can imagine that the Israelites would be incredibly bummed because this was where the presence of God was. They thought all was lost. How How would God glorify himself if the Ark has been stolen? All is lost, right? Okay, and the Philistines, what was happening is they thought that they had stolen this ark, that they had conquered Israel because of their God. Because of what God? Dagon. Okay, he was the God of prosperity. He was symbolized as like a fish, like a fish guy, kind of like a mermaid. But some people also think that he was like kind of this corn God. Iowans love this guy, you know? a God of prosperity. It was a symbol of, hey, if I worship this God, then he's going to give us uh, abundant harvests, and as a God of the land, he will help us actually conquer other pieces of land and acquire them. So the Philistines were worshiping Dagon, and they're like, this God has won us the battle. We have conquered Israel because we were worshiping Dagon, and so they conquered the ark, and they brought it into this temple. Of their God Dagon, as like a trophy. Our God has won. Okay. Now we see that the Philistines were probably so stoked that their God had beat the God of Israel. And so the the Ark of God was like a trophy in the same temple. But what happened when they were in the same room? Was it really that Dagon had beat the God of Israel? It was more like this event was like a Trojan horse event to get the Ark of God, the presence of God, close to the Philistines. Because what actually happened was not a lost battle where God did not glorify himself. When the Israelites thought that all was lost, how would God possibly glorify his name if we have lost the battle? Well, what we see is that when the the Ark of God and the idol of Dagon were in the same room, it provided a perfect opportunity for God to glorify himself as the one true living God. So one night, the idol falls and looks as if it's worshiping the one true God. And the Philistines put it back up and like, ah, it's probably a coincidence. How did that happen? I don't really know. But then the next night happens again, but this time, it shatters. Evidence to them that the God of Israel was truly dwelling in this ark and that he was the true living God. Okay, what do we do with this? What do we do with this story? You and I probably, we don't have these like crafted idols that we're really worshiping. What, what do we do with a story of the ark of God? That's also part of the old Testament and not how God actually reveals Himself now. So, what do we do with this strange story of God's presence wrecking an idol? I think the necessary question that we should start to ask is do I actually have idols in my life that are competing for attention with worship of the God of the universe? Do I have something like Dagon that I'm worshiping to get what I want? Because you have to see that the Philistines worshiped Dagon because they wanted to get an end. Dagon was a means to an end for them. And idols that you and I have are the same way. We treat it kind of like cars. We might not actually be interested in the car itself, but we're interested in where the car will take us. Do you have idols in your life, things that you're worshiping that are just, actually, you want to worship them so it can get you to where you want to be? Do you have idols in your life? And something that we see in the story is that it doesn't end well for the idol. When they are brought face to face with God, the idols fall on their face. So maybe the necessary question for this story is like, okay, how do I free myself from a life of idol worship? How do I free myself from idols at all? And how do I worship the true God? That's really the question that I want to help unpack for the rest of our time. How to find freedom from idolatry. And we're just going to look at three very simple steps. The first being identify. What are the idols that are in our lives? Let's identify them. The second is we will replace them. And the third, enjoyment. It's got a good ending. I'm excited. Let's start with what it means to identify idolatry. Like I talked about early, it's a God trade. We're exchanging God for something else. Look at what Romans chapter 1 says says about this. You can flip there if you'd like, but it'll be on the screens. Romans 1, 21 through 23. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. That's where the whole like god trade idea comes from. This reality that idolatry is exchanging the glory of God for a lesser glory of a created thing. So if you're asking the question, Austin, I'm not I'm not committing idolatry cuz I don't worship like created things. I don't have something made out of metal that I'm worshiping. And that may be true but we don't live in a culture that primarily associates with statues or created objects to promise us prosperity or success. But we do live in a culture that looks to money, to position, to sex, to relationships, to get us what we want. And we look to those things to give us ultimately what only God can provide. It's god Trade Idolatry at its core is trading out the glory of the creator God for something that has been created. Bringing something besides him to the very center, to the first place in your heart. You're the center of your affections. And here's the thing. That thing that you're bringing to the front, that first love, it's probably a good thing. That's what's tricky about this. It's probably a good thing that in itself is not evil, not bad, not sinful. But what idolatry is when you're bringing it to this like first love, you are loving it too much. (laughs) It's like a distorted love, an over love of a good thing. And so when we look at what some of these idolatries, what some of these idols might be, you'll notice that they are good things in and of themselves. In fact, good gifts from God himself. But God's best gifts are often the most risky to become idols in our lives. So I actually want to unpack four categories of what these could be in your life. Ready for these four? Here they go. Relationships, identity, pleasure, and religion. Religion. Four categories of idols that all of us are likely falling into. Relationships. It's that the idol in your life is really just what everybody else around you says about you. It's the people and the relationships that are closest to you. It's a good thing. Search all of the Bible. You'll realize that friendship is a huge thing. But if you're relying on friendship to identify you and relying on friends to satisfy you, they are an idol. It's an over love, an over prioritization of a good thing. Identity. Saying that I am what I have or I am what I do. Maybe it's athletics, maybe it's academics. Maybe it's possessions. Those things are not not bad in and of themselves. In fact, they're amazing things. It's a great thing to have clothes. It's a great thing to be good at a sport. It's a great thing to succeed in school. But if you become so obsessed that if I'm not succeeding at this thing, if I don't look a certain way, if I don't achieve this thing, then I am not enough. Perhaps that thing has turned into an idol. Have they become who you are and beyond just what you do? The third thing, pleasure. Okay, how can I avoid pain and make sure that everything I do feels the best? How can I avoid pain altogether? If that has become the main objective of your life, then perhaps pleasure has become an idol. And here's the thing about pleasure is God invented it. God invented so many of the best pleasures in our lives. Food, drink, sex. He He invented these things for us to enjoy. But if they become the main thing, the thing that is driving our every motive, then perhaps they have become an idol. And the fourth, a tricky one, being religion. Perhaps religion has become an idol for you if you would say that your obedience to God is what causes him to love you. Is it up to you to earn the approval of God? Is it up to you to earn the love of God? Perhaps religion has become an idol that totally depends on you to earn God's favor instead of him loving you first. Chances are, from those four categories, there's something in there that you have risen to a first love. You have exchanged God himself And put one of those things in its place? How do I know if I've taken one of those good things and put them as a God thing? How do I know? Well, now I want to actually give you three symptoms, you might say, of what it looks like if I have actually taken one of those things and put them as an idol. Here's three helpful things that you can look at if you want to diagnose, do I have an idol, an idol in my life? The first being the patterns of sin. Second being inordinate emotions. The third being sacrifice. Let's look at patterns of sin. A way that you can identify if something has turned into an idol in your life is when you're willing to compromise what you know is true and what you know is right in order to get something that you want. For example, if you were to think about a relationship, if a relationship has become your idol, then when it is risked, when it is threatened to go away because of what you believe, and you then compromise what you believe in order to stay in that relationship, then the relationship has turned not just from a good thing, but into a God thing. It's controlling now the way you view your beliefs. What good is Jesus if my boyfriend doesn't love me? What good is following Jesus if my friends don't actually want to hang out with me on the weekends anymore? What are ways that you have compromised what you know to be true in order to pursue relationships? Have you turned them into a God? When that happens, you're functionally worshiping relationships and putting them at the priority. Patterns of sin. Okay, second thing to look at is inordinate emotions. Here's what we mean that, by that emotions that are atypical, emotions that are out of whack, uncharacteristic. Of you? Is there a thing that threatens your emotion so much that when something happens, it drives you kind of crazy? You start to get a little out of whack. It becomes uncontrolled. I don't know what that emotion could be. Here's an example: intramural basketball team. Goodness sakes. If you start fighting with guys at an intramural basketball game, is there something going on there? What is the thing motivating those emotions? A helpful phrase that I've heard is that whatever grips your heart will control your emotions. Is there something deeper going on in your intramural basketball game that is causing you to flip out at the guy that keeps tugging on your jersey? What is it that causes uncontrollable sadness? Not just crying and being sad, but uncontrollable emotion. What is the thing that gets you over the moon? What is controlling your emotions? It's likely the thing that has gripped your heart and come to the first place in your heart. Inordinate emotions. The third thing to look at is sacrifice. Something that we see in all of the ancient world is that sacrifice, that that idols always demanded sacrifice. And the same is true now. Whatever you are worshiping, it actually demands something from you. So a way to look at, hey, what is the thing that is driving my heart? Maybe look at your time. What are you spending a lot of your time doing? Like your free time. What does that say about what is at the center of your heart? How are you spending your money? What are you willing to pay a lot for so that you can have? What are you willing to spend on? Whether it be time, your talents, or your treasure in order to get. That can say a lot about what is at the very center of your heart. Three symptoms of idolatry, that something would cause frequent patterns of sin, it would control your emotions, and it would cause you to give things up in order to have it. These are just a couple ways that you can start to, like, diagnose, hey, do I have something in my life that I have taken from a good thing and put it in the place of God? This is a diagnosis, but what good is a diagnosis if you don't have the right medication for it? Here's the thing. The Philistines in this story in 1 Samuel 5, they got a diagnosis. They saw what happened to their God. They saw that it wasn't enough, but they chose the wrong medication. The medication that we're going to look like, look at is replacement, but look at what the worshippers of Dagon did. When they came to the fork in the road, what would they do with their shattered idol? Look at 1 Samuel 5, 6 and 7. It says that the hand of the Lord was heavy against the people of Ashdod, and he terrified and afflicted them with tumors, both Ashdod and its territory. And when the men of Ashdod saw how things were, they said the ark of the God of Israel must not remain with us for his hand is hard against us and against Dagon, our God. These people saw the power and the glory of the God of Israel and they kicked out the ark, they sent him away and they remained worshiping Dagon. They sent God away, rejecting him, and it left them with a wounded community and a shattered idol. Their people got terribly sick, and their false God was shattered to pieces. The medication that they chose of the shattered idol, it was a bandage. They would resurrect this idol, and they would keep on worshiping it. They would glue it back together and try and worship an idol that they had saw, that they had seen be defeated. I think, honestly, sometimes we do the exact same thing. We know what has happened to our idols, but we're trying to just glue it back together, stick a Band-Aid on it, and try and convince everybody else around us that we're doing okay. How are you seeing how your idols are not enough, but trying to glue them together and convince other people around you and even convince yourself that this is the good life for you? Haven't we seen time and time again some of these things that we put into the place of God, they ultimately fail us? And I think we can put ourselves in the shoes of these Philistines because. It would be hard to deny the God that they've been worshiping and actually start worshiping the God of Israel. It would have been hard to change that way. There would have been a cost for sure. But isn't there a greater cost to continue worshiping a God that shatters? A God that ultimately is just a band aid, a God that ultimately has no power. That cost is even greater. If it feels like your life is in pieces, perhaps it is God trying to reveal to you that the thing that you are worshiping does not satisfy you and cannot satisfy you. Perhaps He's trying to draw you into Himself and say, Hey, I'm the one. I'm the one that can actually meet your needs, I'm the one that can fulfill your every desire. That's what he was doing to the Philistines. Here's what we see in the shattered idol of Dagon, that the idol in your heart always over-promises and under-delivers. Because idols tell you a false promise. Remember the four categories that we looked through a bit ago. Each of those idols is telling you a false promise. The idol of relationships promises you, you will never be alone but we all know that none of us can actually promise that to anyone me and my wife my wife is my best friend and i vowed her that i would stay by her side that we would be together we'd be in it together i love her so much but even that commitment has careful words in our vows until until christ calls me home or when he shows up until death Nobody can actually promise that you'll never be alone. The idolatry of identity says if you can just have that thing, if you can just accomplish that, then you'll be enough. The idolatry of pleasure says you can live a life without pain. The idolatry of religion says you can earn the approval of God. Idols overpromise and underdeliver. None of those can actually be the case. The medication for idolatry cannot be a bandage. It's got to be a transplant. It's got to be a transplant. You need a complete exchange. You need the thing to be at the very center, the only thing. You need it to be the only one that can actually come through on his promises. Through this story of Dagon and the ark, God was trying to reveal that only he could totally deliver them. Only God could totally satisfy their desire for worship. He would show it in glory and grace through the ark, but he would show it ultimately through the death and the resurrection of his son, Jesus. One of the most impactful texts in my walks with Jesus is Romans chapter 5, verse 8. If you'll read it with me, it says, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This is unbelievable grace. That God actually saw you in the middle of your idolatry, in the ways that you right now are fixing your eyes on something other than him and have placed something other than him at the very center of your life. He saw you in that. And he still decided to make a way to totally satisfy you. While you were still a sinner, Christ died for you to purchase eternal salvation for you, to enter into a relationship with him. And through that, You would be able to receive all the things that you do truly desire. You would be able to receive from God the things that you're desiring from these other idols. You would be able to receive purpose and hope and joy and security in him because of him, because of grace. The grace of God is unbelievably good news for idolaters like me. Guys, I'm right there with you in this struggle of having things up here that I'm putting in the place of God. And the greatest news on earth is that even in that, God sees us in that, and he loves us. That's why he sent his son Jesus to die. But the unexpected glory, the glory is in the resurrection It's what assures us of the great truth of the gospel, that three days after Jesus was buried in our place, he rose from the grave, and he's alive, showing his power similarly to how he conquered Dagon. God has power over sin and death entirely. It's how Jesus raised from the grave and proves to us he is worth following. God is. In his power over death, raised Jesus from the grave and seated him in glory where he's reigning right now. We did not have to put our God back together with glue or a band-aid. He brought himself out of the grave. He is powerful enough. And this is how we know that God will deliver on all of his promises. That when idols shatter and cannot deliver, God always Delivers. And so we get to do this third step in freedom from idolatry. We get to do this third step. We get to enjoy. We get to enjoy a God. When he's at the very center, we get to enjoy these things. Because for each of those categories of idols they they give us a false promise that they can't actually deliver on but God through Jesus he can he can deliver and so when the idol the idol of relationships says you'll never be alone Jesus is the only one who can say I will never leave you or forsake you he can say that he means it it's true For the idol of identity. That says, if I just have that, then I'll be enough. Jesus says, I'll pay the penalty for you so that you can be welcomed into the family of God. You can have belonging in the family of God, not because you earned it, because I earned it for you. For the idol of pleasure. Jesus died the most painful death known to man so that you could experience The pleasures of heaven forever. And for the idol of religion, Jesus lived the perfect life that you could never live, and he died in your place so that you could be approved of by God. You've been saved by grace. It's not your own doing. It was a work of God. He's the hero, and it frees you from a life of striving, a life of trying to earn it, you can rest in the finished work of Jesus. Through him, God fully and freely provides everything you could ever want. It's good news. He traded places with you so that you could trade away the idol and receive him and look to him to satisfy your every need. That's the greatest trade of all time that Jesus traded places with you. So, how do we find freedom from idolatry? We identify the idol, we replace it with Jesus, and we enjoy him. It's all him. We get to enjoy him and all that he provides. We get to uproot the idol and plant Christ at the center of our affections. Let's do that together as we pray right now. Father, thank you for this great truth that you do satisfy everything that we could ever want, everything that we could ever need. You meet those needs, God. And we're sorry for not acknowledging that and trying to find satisfaction and worth and glory and other things. God, we've made a terrible mistake in trading you away and putting something else in your place. God, thank you for seeing us as we were doing that and saying, I want to make a way for you to enjoy me forever. God, thank you for sending your son to do what we couldn't do, to pay the penalty for sin and and be raised in victory so that we can trust your words. God, I pray that you would free us from idols tonight. Would you throw them out and would you be at the center? Would you receive the praise and the worship and the attention that you deserve? And I pray that we would be just a people totally in love with you. And would you be glorified in that? Would our lives change because of that? And would you receive glory from that? God, we love you and pray this in your name. Amen.